as you know, over the last several weeks, we have been going through uh, the key figures of the Bible, and we've been here in the Old Testament, and we've been showing um, a little graphic. We're going to show it again tonight, just uh, just as a reminder for all those who have been here, and then if this is your first time, you can you can catch up with us. But this is just a a fantastic picture of of the Old Testament, an Old Testament timeline. You know, you you hear some characters sometimes. You hear people talk about Moses. You hear people talk about Abraham. You hear people talk about Isaiah and talk about all these characters in the Old Testament. And, and many times you don't know exactly where they fit into the story. And this is just the uh, a little timeline. Uh, that, and a lot of people have been taking a picture of it saying, man, I really appreciate this. It's been very helpful. But we see creation there and then what is called uh, universal history. Okay, that's where Noah and the ark happened. That's where the Tower of Babel happened. A lot of those things, uh, the stories that you know. Uh, then the call of Abraham. That happened in Genesis chapter 12. Um, the call of Abraham is here. God called Abraham out of, of a worldly people and said, I want to make my own people and you are going to be the father of that people. And then we enter into to the period of the patriarchs. And when we started this series, we actually started with Abraham. Then we moved into Abraham's son Isaac and Jacob and, uh, and then Joseph. That is the period of the patriarchs. What happens is, is God blesses Joseph, uh, and he blesses Joseph so much. They were in Egypt. God uh, just blesses him through a, a, a whole story of trial and tribulation. God blesses him in the end, becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. God blesses the people so much that finally the, the leader of Egypt, the king or the pharaoh of Egypt, says, man, these people are becoming so powerful, we're going to have to enslave them so they don't take us over. And so 400 years they stayed there um, in bondage in Egypt. And then you have the exodus. That is when the people of God come out of bondage, out of Egypt, and they enter into the wilderness. God's plan was to take them all the way into the promised land. But if you remember the story, they came out of Egypt, and they sent 12 spies into the promised land. And they came back and said, wow, there's giants there. There's big walls. There's no way we can do it. And so the Bible says that everybody that came out of Egypt that was 20 years or older all died in the wilderness. Why? Because God was starting with a fresh generation, people of faith, people that would believe that he would go with them and that they could conquer. And that's whenever Joshua leads the people into Canaan. That's the entrance into, into Canaan. That was God's promised land, the land that he promised Abraham all the way back there at the call of Abraham. Uh, and then we enter into the, uh, the period of conquest, um, the book of Joshua. That's where, uh, where God's people are conquering the people that are there in the land. And then once the conquest is pretty much completed, we enter into the period of the Judges. There's a book in the Bible called Judges. Uh, you can read about uh, the Judges. And then we entered into Israel's monarchy. See, whenever Israel started as a people, there was no king. Uh, God was their king. God was their ruler. And they had people that, that were established that were helping guide and lead them. But now they, they say, no, we want to be like these other countries. We, we want a king. We want somebody to lead us. And, and uh, that probably uh, wasn't the best thing, but that's what they wanted. And God said, okay, give them what they want. And so they had a king. And we started talking about Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And, and so you kind of start putting some people into place. And Saul was the first king, and then uh, David was the second king, and then David's son, Solomon. We talked about that um, two weeks ago. Solomon was king. And then we enter into this place that we haven't quite got to yet, and that's the division of the kingdom. The division of the kingdom. Because Saul, David, and Solomon, the, the kingdom of Israel was a united kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was made up of the 12 tribes. So if you've ever heard of the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes made up the people of God, the people of Israel. And they were all united under Saul, David, and Solomon. But then whenever you get into uh, uh, Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, uh, Rehoboam uh, is, is only the king over the united, uh, uh, united Israel for three years. And after three years, he's, he's causing so many problems, there's a revolt, and Jeroboam splits the kingdom into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So you can see where the division of the kingdom happens right here. It is divided into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. The northern kingdom had ten tribes. The southern kingdom had two tribes. It was Judah and Benjamin that made up those southern tribes. And, uh, and so as we kind of go through here, tonight we're going to be talking about Elijah. Elijah spent most of his time in the northern kingdom. So what I want you to see out of this is that we started off with Saul. 
There's Elijah. And we started off with Saul, and Saul was doing everything. It uh, was, was started off pretty good, and it got not so good. And then David comes in, and David really honors the Lord, and he's the greatest king in the history of Israel, and all that was good. Then he has Solomon, and Solomon comes in, and Solomon does good for a while, and then Solomon falls off down there at the end. And at, towards the end of Solomon's life, and now Rehoboam, and for the next 60 years, Israel is unfaithful to the Lord. Sixty years, they began to wander farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. And 60 years after Solomon, there's a king by the name of Ahab. King Ahab takes over as the king of Israel. That would be the northern kingdom. And with him and his, his wife, Jezebel, uh, Jezebel was the daughter of one of the kings of the land, and she was an idol worshiper. And if you remember the instruction that God gave his people when they came into the land, he said, do not marry the idol-worshiping idol women of the land because they will turn your hearts away from God. We talked about that with Solomon a couple weeks ago. Sure enough, Ahab mar marries Jezebel, and she is an idol worshiper. She worships uh, the the God known as Baal, and she puts the worship of Baal at the forefront of God's kingdom. And just so you know a little bit about Baal, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about Baal and and uh, the the worship of Baal. The picture of Baal that that they that was their image was the picture of a bull. It, it stood for strength and for productivity and for prosperity. Um, the bull would work the field, and so it would be the, the, it was a sign that the crops would be plentiful and that the country would be strong. And in one hand, the bull was holding a clap of thunder, and on, in the other hand, he was holding a lightning bolt. And Baal was, was, it was the god of the Canaanites. That's where the people of Israel moved into, into Canaan. And uh, he was the predominant god that was worshipped in this land. And he was also known as the rider of the clouds, the rider of the clouds. And it was because they, they thought that Baal brought the rain. And that was who they worshipped for rain. And obviously the rain brought the productivity and, and uh, it had good crops and all of these things. And so that's why they worshipped Baal. But as you begin to study it, it's, it's quite interesting um, I was reading uh, about Baal, and some of the things that they were talking about is how highly adaptable this God was, because this God would change from the fact that he gave uh, productivity and maybe um, uh, uh, fertile uh, fields, and then it also became into this that he was the God of fertility in terms of, 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 of human fertility and reproduction. So he would be worshipped there, and then that turned into all types of prostitution and all types of sex, sexual immorality, and that it got... It got all tied up and twisted. And one of the things that they loved about Baal is that they could kind of make Baal whatever they wanted Baal to be. And they would worship Baal. And, and I started thinking about that. And I thought, man, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great just to worship a God that you can make whatever you wanted? Like you just say, man, this is the way it's going to be, and then that's the way it's going to be. And wow, I like this, and so I'm going to make Baal you know, like this, and I'm going to make this. How many of you understand, we serve a God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is Jehovah God, and he does not change for anybody. He doesn't change for a king. He doesn't change for a princess. He doesn't change. He is God, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can't change him, but they like Baal because Baal would change with their desire. Israel, 60 years, unfaithful to the Lord, and now King Ahab and Jezebel, they have intensified this idolatry, and they are, they are worshiping the idols, and they are worshiping Baal, and they have set up worship centers, and they have, uh, they have set up altars to Baal and temples to Baal, and they are worshiping the foreign gods. And, and 10 years into King Ahab's reign, which was almost, almost 20 years he was the king, of Israel, ten years into his reign, so about halfway through, Elijah appears on the scene. This prophet of God appears on the scene, and here's what you know from the very first verse that you read about Elijah. You know two things: one, God is not happy, and two, Elijah is not friendly. It is it is obvious in First Kings 17, in verse one, it says this: Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I 
give the word. Elijah shows up and he's not throwing some little jabs. He shows up with the uppercut. He shows up and the first thing you read about Elijah is he is throwing the knockout punch. You know, just announcing that a, that a drought was coming would be enough. But Elijah declared that the drought to the, he, he declared the drought to the one who was supposed to, supposedly worshiping the rider of the clouds, the God of the rain, the God of the crops. And he showed up to that idol worshiper and he said, here's what's about to go down. It is not going to rain. I don't care how much you pray, how many sacrifices you make, it doesn't matter. It's not going to rain until I say so. That's serious. The name Elijah means the, the Lord is my God, or my God is Jehovah. And he said there would be no rainfall. You know, he could have just said there would be no major rain or there would be no rainfall, but then he, he includes it. There was not going to be any dew on the ground. That's what I like about God. God's like, not only is it not going to rain, there ain't going to be any dew. Your shoes ain't even going to get wet when you walk outside in the morning. I mean, that's how little rain it is going to be. There ain't going to be no water in the land whatsoever. You know, this is quite an entrance into the story of God. And as, as I was doing some research, you know, there, there are actually some scholars that believe that Elijah was not even an Israelite. They believe that Elijah was, was outside of the Hebrew people. They, they say that uh, when it says that he was the Tishbite, uh, that that actually, what that actually means, that he was from the settlers. That he was from the settlers, that, that, he had, that he was an immigrant, that he had migrated into the land of Israel, and that he was not even a true Hebrew, that he was not even a true Israelite. Now, other people argue that he was, but I can tell you this, even if he was, he was from a very remote, rural type of area. The place where they start describing that he came from, whether he was an Israelite or not, that, I, it doesn't really matter to me. I know that he came from an unsuspected place. And there are some lessons that we can learn from this very first part of Elisha's entry into the story of God. Here's the first lesson that we can learn. God brings answers from unusual places. If he was a Gentile, God brings answers for his people from an unusual place. If he, was, if he was an Israelite and he was a part of the Jewish community, God still brought him out from the forest. He brought him out from the rural area. He brought, brought him from a remote area that they don't even know where it exists today because there is, no, there, is no, there is no identification for where this place even was. So this was a very remote place that God brings him from. And then whenever you start thinking about the big picture of God, you see that God often brings answers from unusual places. When you think about how David became king, he, he came from the unusual place. He was just a shepherd boy. He was out with daddy's sheep. He was the youngest of all of the sons. He was, not, he was the one that didn't look the part. He was the one that hadn't qualified for that role, and yet God chose him. When you start looking at Jesus, Jesus was, uh, was born in a manger. He did, he did not roll into the world like you would think the king of the world would roll into the world. He came in a very un, unassuming time, in a very unexpected way and that's why you can't ever judge a book by its cover you, you you never know where the answer of God is going to come from so many amazing inventions so many amazing uh, great nonprofit companies so many things came in such an unusual way because they got an idea in such an unexpected place in an unexpected moment in an un unspecified way and it just happened in that moment and now they've got an answer in their hands just because it doesn't look like you thought it was going to look doesn't mean that God's not in it. God brings answers from unusual places. Here's the second lesson that we can learn is that God can use anyone. God can use anyone. You don't have to be a professional. All you have to be is available. You don't have to be a professional. You just have to be available. Elijah, Elijah rolls up in here and he's speaking to the king. He was just available. He, he's not, he is not a, a professional. He has not gone through any training that we know about whatsoever, but he was just available to be used by God. And we know that Elijah wasn't perfect, but we do know he was passionate. Can I tell you that passion can make up for a lot of imperfection? 
Passion can make up for a lot of imperfection. People that are passionate can get stuff done even when, even when everything's not right, when everything's not perfect. Passionate can make up for so many things. God loves to use passionate people. People think that they need to get perfect. But the more you get perfect, sometimes as you get more perfect, you get more boring. Because you start trying to pay attention to everything and cross every T and dot every I, and you start paying attention to every little detail and this and that. And, this, and by the time you're just like a deadbeat, like nobody even wants to be around you. You're so perfect. You're so out of touch with the world. You're so out of touch with yourself. You're so out of touch with what's going on because you spent all this time trying to become perfect, trying to get everything perfect. And, and God's just looking for somebody that will be passionate about the kingdom of God, passionate about the gospel, passionate about the laws, passionate about reaching souls, passionate about prayer, passionate about worship, passionate about advancing his kingdom. Just passion. God can use anyone. Here's the third thing that we, the lesson that we learned from this entrance into the story of God is that your history is not as important as your destiny. We don't have any record of the early life of, of Elijah. He shows up on the scene and now we're about to, I mean, I'm telling you, we're about to read some stuff. Elijah did some stuff. We don't know anything about his childhood. We don't know anything about his teenage years. We don't know anything about his early life. But let me tell you what, the Bible is full of him from this point on. And it shows us that our destiny is so much more important than our history. It doesn't matter tonight if you're 35 or 75. Don't live bound to your past. Decide to live from this day forward. No matter what is in my yesterday, I decide. And that's what it really is. It is a choice. Regardless of what is back there, today I make a decision. I make a choice that my destiny is not going to be tied to my history. It, it proves it. Elijah, we, we read so many things from this point on amazing miracles about Elijah. Let, let's look at some of them. In 1 Kings 17, Starting in verse 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the, go to the east and hide by the Kareth brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him, and he camped beside Kareth brook east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up. For there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. I mean, what, what an amazing story. You show up to King Ahab and you tell him, listen, man, it ain't going to rain till I say it's going to rain. And then God says, okay, now I want you to go down to the Kareth Brook and I want you to camp out there because while everybody else is struggling, while everybody else is experiencing famine, while everybody else, else is experiencing lack, I'm going to have the birds of the air bring you food that is going to keep you alive. Now what I read here is that we, we all want supernatural provision, but Elijah's supernatural provision only came after a supernatural proclamation. We all want supernatural provision. We all want God to bless us. We all want God to bring the, bring the blessing, bring the food, bring the favor. Bring it on, God. But it only happened after he was willing to stand in the face of the king of Israel and say, I know you worship a God that you think can bring the rain, but let me tell you something. My God is greater than your God, and it's not going to rain no matter what you do until I talk to my God about it. Supernatural provision came after a supernatural proclamation. And sometimes the faith to fight is what allows you to feast. Sometimes it's the faith to fight that allows you to feast. Elijah was willing to fight for God and therefore he got to feast with God. Because he was willing to stand up in the face of, of opposition, he was willing to stand up in the face of this wicked king because he was willing to stand up for God and fight for God, what happened was he got to feast with God. Now, we all understand this. Everybody wants to feast, but nobody wants to fight. Everybody wants the blessing. 
Everybody wants the feast. Everybody wants the miracle, but nobody wants to fight for it. Let me just break it down for you. We just came out of a series not long ago um, about the abundant life. And we talked about the, the abundant life is living in the overflow. It's what Jesus said he died for you to have. Jesus said, I came that you might have life, that you might have it to the full until it overflows in your life. That's what Jesus came for us to have, that we can overflow with joy, overflow with peace, overflow with Holy Spirit power. We were created to live in the overflow. That is feasting. That is what feasting looks like, living in the overflow, living in the blessing. And we get to experience that abundant life when we are completely surrendered to the way and the purpose of Jesus. What is the way and the purpose of Jesus? That is that you would be fighting to advance the kingdom of God. That you would be fighting, that you would be living your life to fulfill the commission that he gave each and every one of us. That we would be fighting to see people saved, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to see them baptized and be, become fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. That is the mission for each and every one of our lives. And it is whenever we enter into that mission and we surrender to that mission, to that purpose, it's when we begin to move in that direction then we get to experience the abundant life because if you are not fighting for the mission, you, there's no need for abundance. It's not so you can have your own little party. It's not so you can just feel good about yourself and get the butterflies all you want and all those kind of things and the goosebumps. No, that's not what the abundant life is about. The abundant life is about people who are running the race to accomplish the purpose of God that they might live in the overflow of their soul what feasting means. And, and, and when, I, when I say that, that, that my man was feasting, my man was feasting. Bread and, and meat every morning. Bread and meat every evening. When you start doing a little research on this, they say that only the king and his royal family would have eaten meat every day, and most of them would have only eaten meat once a day. For the common person, meat was reserved for special occasions. And Elijah is getting meat every morning and meat every evening. Can I tell you that it doesn't matter what table you eat off of. Whenever you eat off the king's table, you eat off the best table. When you eat off God's table, God says, I will fly it in for you. I mean, this is FedEx before FedEx existed. I mean, he, he is flying it in every single day and providing it right there for Elijah. And he is feasting. So many times it's the faith to fight that precedes the favor to feast. We all want the favor. We all want to feast. But it's the faith to fight that always comes before the favor to feast. We want the blessing, but not the battle. But if I had something to tell you tonight, I would tell you that, that, that the blessing is on the other side of your battle. And we don't want to fight the battle. And, but what we don't understand is that the blessing is on the other side. The only way to get to that blessing is to engage in battle. The only way to get that favor is to fight for it. The only way to get to the other side is to go through whatever you have to go through. And we all want the blessing. We all want what we read there and say, wow, wouldn't it be great if God provided for me like this supernaturally? Yes, it would be great. But you also have to have the courage to stand up and fight for the things that God has asked us to fight for. I love Psalm 23, David writes, and he says this. He says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. But do you see? I mean, we say, man, I love this. God, prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. God, anoint my head with oil. God, I want my cup to overflow. Let goodness and unfailing love pursue me all the days of my life. Yes, 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 yes. David said that comes after you walk through the valley. That comes after you go through the tough nights. 
that comes after you, sign up and say, I'm willing to do the hard work of what is required. I'm willing to embrace whatever I need to embrace, go through whatever I need to go through. If I got to suffer a while, I'll suffer a while. If I got to give more, I'll give more. I'll do whatever it takes. I will walk through this challenge and I will walk through this trial. And when I walk through the valley, not if I walk through the valley, I'm going to go through that valley because for every single believer, there is a valley in front of you because the only way you get to the next mountaintop is if you walk through the valley. So after every mountaintop is another valley and another mountaintop and another valley. And that's what life is made up of. And David said, I'm going to walk through those valleys because this is what I know is on the other side of that darkness. This is what's on the other side of that fight. This is what's on the other side of that sacrifice. There is a table that is prepared for me in the presence of my enemies and my cup of blessing is going to overflow and your goodness and your love and your kindness is going to pursue me and overtake me and I will live in your presence forever. After I walk through the valley. I love what God tells him. He says, I want you to go to this Kareth brook and I want you to eat what the ravens bring you. God didn't tell him what was on the menu. He said, I want you to eat what they bring you. Elijah didn't know what they were bringing. He just obeyed. I mean, they, they could have brought in some leafy greens and tangerines. I mean, they they, they could have brought in something he didn't like. But God brought him bread and meat. Elijah's my kind of man. Maybe some mashed potatoes on the side. But I mean, God, 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 God didn't say, hey, I want you to go there and this is what I'm going to bring you. He said, I want you to go there. And now here's the thing. He said, the ravens are going to bring it to you. Ravens were scavengers. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would have been like, <clears throat> <clears throat> um, uh, God, what, what exactly are they going to be bringing me? <laughs> I might be looking for plan B if I, if I don't like the menu. That's not what Elijah did. Elijah just obeyed. Elijah showed up there, and God provided him an amazing meal, and God kept doing that every morning and every evening. He was drinking from the brook. He was eating the supernatural food, food drinking from the brook. This continued on and on and on. And then in verse 7, it says, the brook dried up. I want you to pay attention to one thing. It says the, the, the brook dried up, but God didn't. The, br the brook dried up, but God didn't. People often get confused when the brook dries up. When their current place of provision ceases to provide. It's where people get confused. People get frustrated because the way that God was providing for them ceases to be their provision. And then people... In this state, they will begin to blame God. They will begin to blame themselves. They'll start blaming other people, and they, they begin to play the blame game. Can I tell you, whenever you play the blame game, when you, when you blame, you always remain. When you begin to blame, you will always remain. You can never move forward playing the blame game. If you are blaming your parents for where you are, you will never advance in life. If you are blaming your second grade teacher for what they said to you and why you could never get the grades in third and fourth grade and you fell behind and you're still blaming your second grade teacher, uh, you're never going to move forward. You cannot play the blame game and move forward. Why? Because you're giving somebody else the power and control over your life. And you can't ever move forward until you take the power and control back in your own life and say, no, there's nobody else here to blame. I've got to take control myself. And what we, what we see in this text is that when the brook dries, up, what did he do? He just looked up. The brook dries up. Whenever your brook dries up, you just have to look up. You didn't create the brook in the first place. It wasn't your idea to go to the Kareth brook. That was not your plan. That was, that was not your invention. And whenever you look up, you remind yourself that the brook wasn't your source in the first place. God was your source. So whenever, you, whenever, whenever your brook dries up, whenever your provision dries up, when the way God was getting what he wanted to get to you in the past to you, whenever that, whenever that source dries up, it wasn't the source that was providing for you anyway. It was God that was providing for you. 
And, and why do you look up? You have to look up so that you can go up to the next level of blessing. There are people that the brook dries up and they're still crying that the brook dried up. And they're still standing by the same brook. They're still standing there. And they're still crying over the same thing that happened five years ago because they don't understand. They're confused, they're perplexed, they're disappointed, they're discouraged, and they're still standing by the Kareth Brook and they're crying because there's no more water there and God must not love me and somebody else should have told me and blah, 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 all those kind of things. But no, not whenever you are a person of God. When you're a person of God and the Kareth Brook dries up, you look up and say, God, this was never my idea anyway. This was your idea. This is how you were choosing to provide for me for the last however many months it was. And God, I know that you are still going to, to, to take care of me because that's the God that you are. You are our, our provider. You are my shelter. You, you are the God who makes a way where there is no way. And so I'm trusting you even though the brook dried up and there's no more ravens bringing me food. I'm still trusting that you see me and that you will provide for me. That's exactly what happens. Then the Lord says to Elijah in verse 8, Go and live in the village of Seraphath. Near the city of Sidon, I have instructed a widow there to feed you. It dries up. God says, okay, it's time, it's time to move. It's time to move. But it was so good here. God, why, why would we have to move? It was so good here. I mean, that's that, that shout to the Lord song. It was so good. Why can't we sing shout to the Lord anymore? I mean, it was so good. Back in 1998, it was so good. It was rocking. Shout to the Lord. I mean, why, why can't we go back there? God, God why, can't we, why can't we just stay here? Why can't we just stay there? Well, the brook dries up because God's getting you to move. Why? Because this is a faith journey. This is not a faith sitting. This is a faith journey, and God is taking us all on this journey. So, yes, we learn new songs, and yes, we hear new sermons, and yes, we read new books, and yes, we experience new things. Why? Because we are all on this journey of faith. And he says, I want you to move now because there's a widow that I have already instructed to take care of you. The thing you need to know about Zarephath is Zarephath is in the heart of Baal country. It's in the very center of the worshipers of Baal. God's miracles aren't limited to happening in the church. God, God, God sent his prophet, he sent his man right into the middle of sin, right into the middle of, of idolatry, right into the middle of evil, because miracles can happen right in the midst of all of it. God's feeding him with ravens one minute. He's feeding him with the widow the next. Two unlikely sources for God's unlikely man. an amazing story there in 1 Kings 17. I would really encourage you to maybe go read it tonight as the widow begins to take care of him. Elijah rolls into town, and he says, can you get me some water? And she says, okay, I'll get you some water. She turns around to go get him some water, and he says, hey, um, and while you're there, can you, can, you, can you just bake me a little loaf of bread? And uh, she says, uh, sir, I don't have any bread in my house. I actually just have a, just a little bit of oil, a little bit of flour, and I'm actually out here gathering sticks because me and my son are going to start a fire. We're going to cook the little bread that we have, and, and then we're going to die because uh, we just don't have enough to eat. And, uh, and, and Elijah, you got you to gotta love God. He says, okay, that sounds good, but go ahead and make me that loaf of bread. <laughs> Bring it to me. If you do this for the rest of this famine, you'll have oil and flour in your house. You'll eat for the next few years. Don't, don't worry about it. You just give me. That's exactly what she does. She goes, she breaks a loaf. It's a miracle story that God provides for him. Her son dies in the process, and Elijah prays for him. Son comes back to life. It, it, is, a, it is a fantastic story of God's, once again, his supernatural provision. But I, I want to move forward now. Uh, after, after this time that God sustained him with the ravens, God now has now sustained him with this widow. God instructs Elijah in the third year of the drought to go meet again with King Ahab. 1 Kings 18, this is, this is their, their first meeting since the, we just read a moment ago. And it says, uh, when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So, is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who, who, who are supported by Jezebel. 
So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So many times I've discovered it's it's those who violate the commands of the Lord that feel violated. We'll say that again. It's those who violate the commands of the Lord that feel violated. Ahab knew what he was doing. He knew, once again, we're only 60 years removed from people following the Lord. Only 60 years removed. The, t- the temple was still intact. There, there was still a, a remnant of God. They, 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 he knew what it was to serve God. He knew who Jehovah was. And yet he calls out to Elijah and he says, you are a troublemaker. Elijah, look what you did. Look at this famine. Look at all this devastation. Look what you did. He feels violated, and he was the one violating the law of God. He was the one violating the command of God, and he feels like he was violated. But I love Elijah's response. He's like, don't blame me. It's your fault. You did this to yourself. This is why destiny doesn't let me counsel people. Because I got a little bit of Elijah in me. I can hear a sad story, tears running down people's face, and I can say, I don't know why you're crying. You knew better and you did it anyway. It doesn't go over too well. I mean, it's like counseling sessions. You know, they, they leave and they never come back. That's why I don't, that's why I don't do that. Destiny tells me I've, I've got a chip missing in there, you know. She has empathy written on it, and somebody stole it at birth, and it's just gone. And I, but I've got a, I got a little bit of Elijah. He, he says, hey, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. You're not going to come in here and blame anybody. You're not going to say, no, no, you did this to yourself because you violated the law of God. You violated the worship of God. You violated the command of God. And because of that, that's why it hasn't rained in all of these years. And then he stands up in front of the whole group of people of Israel and he says, I'm tired of you flipping back and forth. Tired of you hobbling and wavering back and forth. He says, you got to decide, who are you going to serve? If, he, if God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. And it says they were completely silent. You know, I can always tell on Sundays whenever I'm preaching really good because the quieter it gets, the deeper God's working. I mean, when you say God is good, everybody's like, yeah, God is good. But when you start talking about gossip, I mean, you start talking about you're an overcomer. Amen, pastor, that's good, that's good. You start talking about prayer and fasting. The quieter it gets, the deeper God's working. It says they went silent. They went silent. Why did they go silent? Because they knew. They, they knew. They knew what they had chosen. They, they chose the adaptable God. They chose the God that would form to what they wanted it to be. They, they, they were choosing the God that made their life more, more pleasurable, made their life a little bit easier. That's what, they were, that's what they were choosing. They were choosing that God, but they knew whenever the man of God stood up and he declared the dec- decla- when he declared the word of God over them, they were silent because they knew. They knew. Then Elijah gives the instructions, and we're going to kind of wrap up with this story right here. And it says that Elijah gives the instruction for the the Mount Carmel showdown, if you would. He tells Ahab, he says, all right, you, you round up all those prophets of Baal, all 400 of them. And I tell you what, why don't you go ahead and you bring their friends too, the 450 prophets of, of Astra, there's another guy. They say, just go ahead and round them all up. Bring them all up to the mountain. Tell all the people to come. We're, we're going to have a showdown. Then he sets the instructions up. He says, here's what we're going to do. we got two bulls here. I'm going to let you pick whatever bull you want. So we're going to take that bull. We're going to lay it on the altar. You're going to cut it all up. You're going to lay it on the altar. And you're going to cry out to your God. And whoever 
whichever God answers by fire, that'll be the real God. So they got the showdown set early in the morning. They get up, and man, Elijah is just so confident, he lets them go first. He says, okay, you get to choose the bull, you get to go first. Bible says that they spent all morning, they, they were chanting and they were crying out to God. The bull is there on the altar and they're, they're dancing and they're shouting and they're, 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 they're chanting and they're trying to get Baal to listen. It says about, about noon, Elijah starts mocking them because nothing's happening. He says, maybe you need to shout a little louder. Maybe, maybe Baal is hard of hearing today. He says, maybe, maybe he's been on vacation right now. You need to call him back. He goes, maybe he's in the restroom. I mean, this is in the Bible. I'm not making this up. And he mocks him and he just lets him keep going, keep going, keep going all the way into the evening. They, they, they have been crying, cutting themselves, doing everything they can to get Bell to answer. Oh, says, nothing. Nothing happened. Then in 1 Kings 18, verse 30, it says, Then Elijah called to the people. He says, Come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bulls into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. When they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So you got 12 Stones, and you got 12 jars of water being poured, 12 symbol of covenant. So that's what they did. The Bible says in verse 35, and the water ran around the altar and filled, even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what we're talking about. He's a generational God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh, Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. What a powerful statement. He's not saying, God, prove me right in this. God, show me who you are. Oh, his heart's not, but he says, God, I know who you are. Show up today so that the hearts of the people might be reconnected to you, so that the people will know that you still have a heart for them. It says immediately in verse 38, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven. It burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. Whenever God comes, he doesn't just come for the sacrifice. He comes for it all. And it even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground, and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. What a moment. All of Israel gathered around the mouth. Fire comes down. Boom. Laps up the sacrifice, the stones, the water. I mean, who pours water on a fire sacrifice? You're trying to start a fire. The first thing you're not going to think is pour some water on it. No, you want it to be as dry as possible. I said, no, go ahead, let's, let's, let's don't do four jars. Let's do 12. Let's get it so saturated that the trench fills up with water. Calls down fire from heaven. I don't, I don't know about you, but if you're Elijah and you just stood up against the king, 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets, of Asherah, and you just stood up there all alone, all by your lonesome self, you and God, 
tag teaming. You know what I mean? And you just call down fire from heaven, and the fire consumes the sacrifice. I don't know about you, but, like, I'm, I'm about to throw a party, and it ain't going to be a short party. I'm about to start a parade. I mean, I'm about to go, I'm about to write a book and go on a book tour. You know, like how to call down fire from heaven. I mean, I'm about, I'm about to turn this thing into a whole new lifestyle. I'm about to go from town to town and city to city. I'm about to do something, but, but that's not what Elijah does. Calls down fire from heaven. Takes the prophets of Baal down. Has all of them killed. You would think, wow, you just saw a miracle. You just saw fire come down from heaven. Don't don't you think you need a little time off? Don't you think you you need just to go on a vacation? Don't you think, no, no, not, not Elijah. Elijah climbs back up the mountain to pray. What it says in verse 41, right after this moment, prophets have been killed. About to go back up the mountain, then Elijah said in verse 41, then Elijah said to Ahab, you go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. It hasn't rained in three years. He says, he says, you go eat and drink. He tells Ahab, you go party. You go relax. You, you, go, you go take care of yourself. I hear a rainstorm coming, and I'm going back up to the mountain because I've got some business to attend to. Verse 42, so Ahab Ahab went to drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked. And returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. Finally, the seventh time, his servants told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain is going to stop you. And soon the sky was black with clouds and heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran out ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way into the entrance of Jezreel. What? Fire back up on the mountain. He kneels down I don't know how he got his head between his knees. That's not happening on this stage. And he prayed. Because he told Ahab, I hear the sound of a mighty wind. And he begins to pray. And he tells his servant, go and look towards the sea and tell me if you see anything. Tell me if you see any clouds. And he comes back and he says, no, I don't see anything. And he says, okay, now go back again and tell me if you see anything. And he comes back and he says, no, I don't see anything. He says, go back again and if you see anything. He comes back the third time. No, it happens six times and he hasn't seen anything. And, and, And Elijah hasn't moved from his posture. Go back again and tell me if you see anything. You know, sometimes things don't happen as fast as we want them to. Go back again and tell me if you see anything because I believe that Elijah, he could hear the rainstorm and I believe he could see it 
with his, with his faith. And, and maybe Elijah didn't want to go look because he, he, he thought, if I go look, then, then I will convince myself that it's not coming. And he kept sending his servant to look because he says, I've got to stay here in the posture of prayer because I hear something with my spiritual ears and I see something with my spiritual eyes and I'm not moving from this place until what I'm, what I'm crying out for and what I'm praying for comes to pass. The seventh time he comes back and, and he just says, well, I, I just see it's a cloud as small as a man's hand. Small as a man's hand. That's a small cloud. And Elijah pops up. He says, that's it. Hurry. Run. Tell everybody. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't, no, you don't understand. I said, it's a, it's a, it's a small cloud. Oh, but you see, Elijah had been in business with God for too long to miss this one. He said, no, 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 this is him. I, I know it when it's him. I, I, I know it when God is about to show up, and, and I'm hearing the posture prayer, and I've been hearing this sound, and I've been seeing this rain, and it's just a small cloud. But let me tell you, God can turn big things out of just small things. And he said, you better go tell Ahab. You better tell him he better, he better fire up them chariots, and he better run as fast as he can, or he's going to get caught in this rainstorm. And then Elijah, with supernatural strength, tucks his cloak into his belt and outruns the chariots of the king over 20 miles. When I read that, I'm like, wow. Man, I, I want some supernatural strength like that. I just hear the Lord say, wow. Well, I, I want surrender like this. And if I can get this type of surrender, then I can give you that type of strength. But I need somebody to live submitted and surrendered on the top of Mount Carmel so that they can outrun the enemy so they can outrun their adversary, so they can outrun their fear, so they can outrun their adversity, so they can outrun their worry, so they can outrun their opposition. I need somebody who is submitted in the posture of prayer. I need somebody to stay in that posture of prayer. I need somebody to stay in that flow of faith. I need somebody to stay in the anticipation of the expectation that the next time I send you, you're going to see something. The next time I get up, there's going to be a miracle around the corner. The next time I need somebody to stay in the anticipation stage. There would have been no need for this special strength if there was no special surrender. It, it always comes back to this. It's faith before the feast battle before the blessing, the surrender before the strength. I want to close with this, this last verse in James chapter 5, verse 17. This is in the New Testament. James is writing, and he says, Elijah was as human as we are. Do we need to review? Standing in front of King Ahab. Going to the Kareth Brook. Finding the widow, supernatural provision. Going back to King Ahab. Challenging all the prophets, calling fire from heaven, praying, seeing rain come. Hasn't rained in three years. He's praying, rain cloud begin to form, a terrific rainstorm. Come. He tucks his cloak. He outruns the chariots of the king. Elijah, the Bible says, was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. 
Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. Elijah was as human as you. Elijah was as human as me. difference is is that Elijah's focus was never on his humanity. Elijah's focus was always on his divinity. Elijah's focus was never on his natural. Elijah's focus was always on God's super. And, And Elijah understood if I can keep my focus in the flow of faith I can see the will of God come to pass supernaturally in my life. Elijah is just as human as you. When I read that again this week, as I was preparing, something began to stir in my heart. I said, man, man. Fire from heaven. Man. Miracle provision. Man. We're outrunning the chariots. Man, God, let's do it. I said, no, 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 no. Let's get to that surrender first. No, 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 let's get let's get to the fight first. No, 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 let's talk about that battle before we get to that blessing. Let's deal with that first, and then we can experience the miracles that Elijah experienced. I want you to stand with me all over this place. I want you to bow your heads just for a moment tonight. Here's what you need to know. As your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, God getting the blessing to you is not the hard part. You going through the battle is the hard part. God getting his provision into your hand That's not the hard part. You getting God's proclamation in your mouth, that's the hard part. God giving you supernatural strength, supernatural endurance, supernatural creativity, supernatural ideas, supernatural connections. God giving you, that's not the hard part. The hard part is will you climb Mount Carmel all by yourself and put your head in between your knees and surrender your will and your life to Him. a table before you in the presence of your enemies. That's not a hard part for God. Causing your cup to overflow for you to live the abundant life, that's not hard for God. Having goodness and mercy pursuing you all the days of your life, that's no challenge for God. The challenge is will I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? continue to press on and persevere? Will I run my race even when it hurts? Will I fight my fight even when I get wounded? Even when I get offended? Even when I get stabbed in the back? Even when I'm betrayed? 
even when I'm disappointed, even when it doesn't look like I thought it was going to look or turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out? Will I keep on fighting and keep on running? Will I make it through the valley to the other side? That's the hard part. I just I just believe that there's some people in the room that you feel you feel you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on you right now. You feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart saying, Yes, this is you. This is for you. Another level of surrender, another level of sacrifice, stepping into the battle stepping into the great unknown, trusting God at a level that you've never trusted God at before, standing up, declaring his word, proclaiming his goodness. This is you. This is you. The Holy Spirit's pulling on you, tugging on you right now. You say, I know this word is for me right now. The hard part is not God doing his super. The hard part is me getting in position. It's maintaining that posture of prayer, that flow of faith, that anticipation with my expectation. That's the hard part. And you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart right now. And you say, this message is for me. God is dealing with me right now. Come on, I want you to shoot your hand up right now. If that's for you, you know right now God is dealing with you. God is speaking to you. This word is for you. God is ministering to you.